A quick note before the show just to mention that John Quincy Adams Society is now accepting applications for its inaugural Strategic Leaders Fellowship. If you've got five to 15 years of foreign policy experience, this fellowship can give you the chance to study grand strategy with top scholars from the DC think tanks and academia, among many other perks. Applications are due soon, so visit jqas.org slf for more details on how to apply. John Glazer. My guest today is Barry Posen, professor of political science at MIT. Barry, welcome to the show. Good to be here. So just to kind of set the table, explain why you think Russia has built up its armed forces along the Ukrainian border. Well, there's two possibilities and they're not mutually exclusive. Um, The first is that they're endeavoring to coerce the United States, coerce um, remaining members of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, uh, other European powers who are not members of NATO, and of course the Ukrainians themselves. And if we take the Russian position at face value, um, one of the most important things that they're trying to do in all this is convince both the Ukrainians and the Americans to give up the idea and the policy that Ukraine will ever be a member of NATO. Now, some people say there are many other purposes, and the Russians themselves have put down a lot of markers, but given that most of the military power is pointed at Ukraine in some way or the other, it seems to me that the principal driver of the current crisis is Ukraine. And you could argue that the purpose of this is to get us to change our minds, And the secondary purpose may be, if we and the Ukrainians don't change our minds and our policies, then the Russians will change the facts on the ground in some way, either take part or all of Ukraine to ensure against the possibility that Ukraine becomes a member of NATO. If Russia were to invade Ukraine, how do you think that would unfold? What kind of political objectives would Moscow be looking for, and would those be achievable at an acceptable cost? Well, the question of what Moscow could achieve by military action is is a complicated one. And when you try and put yourself in the position of the Russian leadership, including the principal leader, Vladimir Putin, it's not easy to construct a cost-gain kind of calculus that makes it seem like any possible military action is really going to be worth the cost. But that's a problem of us imposing our modes of thinking on the Russians. So people have talked about three possible kinds of military objectives that the Russians could have, and they and they vary with degree of difficulty and and the amount of real estate taken. One is to simply do more to consolidate their hold on um, the two oblasts of the Donbass that that their proxies currently occupy and take a land bridge to Crimea. This doesn't seem to be worth 
the candle. Um, the second thing they could be trying, be, they could think about doing would be taking most of Ukraine east of the Dnieper, Dnieper River, which sort of bu- doesn't quite bisect Ukraine, but it's a very large and impressive river that more or less describes an S going down the middle part of the country. Um, that would conceivably ameliorate Russian fears about what a NATO in their backyard might mean militarily, if that's their basic fear. And because it would lock in bad relations with Ukraine, it might paradoxically also help keep Ukraine out of NATO because NATO even now doesn't want to bring in Ukraine because Ukraine has a frozen conflict with Russia. It'd be an even bigger frozen conflict. So you could argue with that kind of military operation, which I think the Russians are, in fact, quite well poised to mount and, and to achieve success with at this moment, would solve some military problems for the Russians and, you know, in the sense of keeping NATO back from their borders, uh, would certainly further antagonize the Ukrainians, which would not be good. But at the same time, there could be a paradoxical gain, which is the deepening intensity of the conflict with Ukraine makes it a bigger hill to climb for NATO to decide to bring Ukraine into the alliance. That said, it's going to drive the Ukrainian rump state closer to Europe and closer to the Americans in a lot of other ways, with the caveat that we will all now know that when Vladimir Putin says that NATO's policies in Ukraine make him nervous, he will have proven just how nervous it makes him and the kinds of actions he's willing to take. So he could continue to coerce, you know, basically say, look, I I showed you what I can and will do. Uh, Keep, you know, Pay closer attention. I, I, I don't want this to happen, right? And then the third thing he could do is the one that you know, people often characterizes the way people are talking about the Russians these days, in part, I think, because it's simple, simpler to talk about, is he could try and take the whole country, you know, right up to the, um, the Polish border and the borders with other NATO member states. And this would mean he had, in some sense, solved one problem once and for all, but he will open himself up to another problem. Because as you cross the Dnieper, you begin coming, you know, you're basically occupying areas that are both ethnically and linguistically Ukrainian. And when you're more likely to encounter Ukrainian nationalism, it's going to be somewhat harder to control the population, somewhat more likely there'll be violent resistance. Um, you're closer to NATO, so if NATO is feeling particularly gutsy, they could conceivably support a resistance. Some people have abdicated that. I, I don't think that's likely myself. Um, so those are the three things, and any of them will trigger a whole series of reactions, you know, negative reactions in the West, including sanctions of one kind or another, varying levels of intensity probably, and practically speaking, varying durations, but any of them are going to trigger sanctions. Any of them are going to trigger some intensified NATO military activity out of fear and out of the desire to send Putin a message, right? And it it increases Russian dependency on China. So there are cause to action, right? And I think what the West has been trying to do is find a series of concessions that don't make us 
feel too bad that will make him feel good enough that when he looks at the overall cost gain calculus, he decides that uh, war isn't that good a bet. And so that's, I think, what Western diplomats are hoping for. And it's completely unclear to me whether they can achieve it, because it's hard to know if any of the concessions that the West is prepared to offer are going to be um, responsive enough to Russian concerns to actually allay their fears enough that they'll be willing to rely upon an open-ended diplomatic process rather than just taking what they can get by military means. So it seems like one thing that the U.S. and NATO side could do to avoid a, a rather hellish military conflict is to somehow close this door to future NATO membership for Ukraine. U.S. NATO leaders, as you've, as you've said, they're not currently welcoming Ukraine into NATO. It's, it's not currently eligible, but they won't budge from this position of keeping the proverbial door open to membership soon in the future. Why is that so important to U.S. and NATO leaders? Uh, you're asking the wrong person why the open door process is so important because I, I you know, I, I think it's mostly a manufactured thing. If you look at the original North Atlantic Treaty as it was signed, there is an open door clause, but it's it's rather tentative and it uses the word may. It says the members may, with unanimous consent, bring in new members if those new members make a you know, contribution to European security. And I'll get the date wrong, but sometime after the Soviet Union collapsed, NATO began reinterpreting this clause to describe NATO as a, I'm going to have to be a little bit cynical here, as a kind of liberal democratic affinity group that any liberal democratic state in plausibly in the North Atlantic region um, has the right to join, which is code language for you know any any former ally or any, uh, of the Soviet Union or any former republic of the Soviet Union that's in the penumbra of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization to include Georgia, which is pretty far away, right, uh, can come in. And this is a way of asserting that um, you know, the liberal democracies won the Cold War and the autocracies lost, and liberal rules are going to apply and liberal institutions are going to dominate Europe. Now, there's one caveat here, which is that the sovereignty principle is much older than, you know, liberalism. It goes back to the end of the Thirty Years' War, and the sovereignty principle is basically a peace principle, right? And you know, what you people mean by sovereignty, you know, it varies a bit. Uh, um, but we've, ex we've defined sovereignty rather broadly here, which is to say that Ukraine not only has the right to want to join NATO, but that somehow NATO, as a defender of sovereignty, has the obligation to bring them in, which is a quite extravagant interpretation of the sovereignty principle, right? I, I believe in the sovereignty principle. I think most realists believe it's a good principle because basically it says states really shouldn't intervene in the internal affairs of other countries, right? And I think it would be best if, if Russia did not intervene in the internal affairs of other countries. And by the way, Russia has been a big defender of the sovereignty principle up till now, right? But I feel like we have 
subtly reinterpreted it to have a much bigger kind of implication, right? So, you know, it's our business whether we want to have an open door in NATO to have Ukraine enter. Not Ukraine's, it's Ukraine's business to want to be in. It's our business to decide whether to admit them. And given what the original clause of the treaty said, we are under no obligation to admit them. And I think that it, you know, it, it's been clear from the moment that George W. Bush, for reasons that have never been clear to me, decided to force this issue in NATO in 2008. We must open the door to Ukraine and say we're opening the door. It's never been too clear to me why Bush and the people around him thought this was a good idea. And the whole reason that NATO said, the rest of the member states said, yeah, in the fullness of time was because they didn't think it was a good idea, right? They don't want to be responsible for Ukraine. It's a bridge too far, right? Uh, if you just look at the geography, it's a very hard place to defend. It's a big country with a long border with Russia. One of the reasons so threatened now is because the border is long and irregularly shaped, and it lends itself to attack from multiple directions. So there's lots of reasons why Europeans might not, European members of NATO might not want Ukraine in, but now it's turned into a different kind of, um, you know, alliance solidarity issue, which is, you know, just because we said we don't want them in doesn't mean that you, the Russians, get to tell us how to not have them in, which is to say private discussions among ourselves in which we veto American adventurism, right? You want us to have a kind of a public spat here in NATO and have us kowtow to you, the Russians, which we don't want to do because we don't want to weaken the alliance. So we don't want to make the Americans angry because, by the way, we like the American guarantee. It's really cheap security for us, right? So for whatever crazy reasons, the Americans decided they wanted to start this idea 14 years ago. And for whatever reasons they've sustained it, you know, we may oppose it, but we're not going to cross the Americans publicly because our relationship matters too much. So now everyone's in this position of having to finesse this some way, right? To sort of find a way to give the Russians a set of assurances that will make them happy that don't involve what amounts to a public, I don't want to call it, well, let's call it what it is, public humiliation for NATO, right? Uh, which the Americans and the Europeans all love for their own reasons. On this question of NATO expansion, I want to ask you about what I see as a kind of marked shift in the perceptions and understandings of geopolitics on the part of policymakers. You know, it seems to me if I think back to the end of the Cold War, there were some principal members of the George H.W. Bush administration that seemed to understand uh, Russia's security concerns on this score as somewhat legitimate. And um, now we're more likely to hear members of the foreign policy establishment disregard even the possibility that Russia could legitimately see NATO expansion as threatening. Can you explain that shift? No, I can't explain the shift. <laughs> um, even then, you know, there's there were divisions in the Bush, the first Bush administration. Um, yeah, there's an old concept in military strategy, which applies to diplomatic strategy as well. It's called the victory disease. And the more you get, the more you want, the more success you have, the cockier you get. 
uh, you know, when the Cold War ended, the United States was really more this probably the strongest state relative to other states in oh, since there since the uh, a world international political system evolved, and you can date that to whenever you want, but it became a global system, uh, you know, sometime in the late, I would say the late 1800s, early 1900s, a truly global system. And the British Empire was a pretty big and imposing force relative to all the others in that system. But we were, in, when the Cold War ended, we were an even bigger and more imposing force. Um, and it's very hard when you have that much power to not become a bit full of yourself. And there was the narrative, which was you know, a historical fact, which is the liberal Democrats held together and the Russian communists fell apart. So liberalism won, totalitarianism lost. So you marry this, you know, the heady wine of ideological triumph with the heady wine of a huge power position, and uh, the appetite grows with the eating. And even as we were negotiating the end of, you know, the Soviet empire, some people are already thinking, well, do we really have to kind of be quite so responsive to Russia's concerns, right? And there are scholars, you know, Josh Schifferson is a scholar who's paid a huge amount of attention to this issue. So, you know, we, start out, we started out those negotiations somewhat more sensitive of Russia's interests then even by the end then, even by the time the Bush administration left, they were doing what they could to keep their options open, right? But you were right. There were realists in that administration who understood. But with each subsequent administration, um, you know, the propensity to think about Russia's interests has, has diminished, right? And I'm not smart enough to know which comes first, the chicken or the egg in this situation. But Americans are very prone to describe their geopolitical competitions with other countries as ideological ones. And we have been in the process in the last, I don't know, decade or so of weaving a new ideological story about the re-emergence of Russian military power from zero to something and the emergence of Chinese military power from something to something pretty impressive, right? Which a realist, a great balance of power theorist would just say, look, this is what happens in the world. You adjust, right? And uh, it doesn't matter what flavor they are ideologically. You can't just continue to read other peer powers, the, the riot act about how the world should be organized. But Americans tend to weave a different fabric, which is if they're growing their military power, it's because they they want to reorder the world in their image. And that's partly because we have <laughs> tried to reorder the world in ours. And so now we've spun this tapestry of a kind of a world autocratic conspiracy to destroy liberal democracy. I don't know, maybe, you know, we're Maybe somewhere Putin and Xi have written this conspiracy, but what I see is two states looking for elbow room. You know, there's an old cartoon, which I 
been trying to find, but I can't, that shows an Ameri- a bemetalled American general briefing the president, pointing to a map and say, Mr. President, our security problems would be much easier if people stopped building their countries near our bases, right? With our base structure being all over the world. So you can see what the irony is there, right? So, you know, when the Cold War ended, uh, you know, the, the frontiers of our liberal democratic alliance were right on the edge of the, you know, the Soviet, you know, totalitarian system, which collapsed, the Soviet empire, which then collapsed. And then on the edge of communist China, which at that time was a kind of a tacit ally of ours, but as a geopolitician would predict, once the Soviets go away, our tacit alliance with China would also begin to erode, which it did, and China launched its growth period, right? So this is all a roundabout way of saying that, uh, you know, we started right up on the periphery of these two powers, and it's not a surprise <laughs> that they don't like it, right? Now, we don't have to betray our extant allies, but at the same time, you know, we viewed the alliance system we had at the end of the Cold War as a jumping off place to move our coalition, our system of, of allies even closer to the now shrunken Russian heartland. <laughs> so, and then we're surprised that they get exercised about this and develop a elaborate conspiracy theory. Now, Putin makes it easy because he likes to write and give talks and, and you know, really commission, you know, academics to write elaborate rationales for why he should have a purview over his periphery. And of course, all this stuff becomes grist for the mill of fabricating the story, not the story, fabricating an explanation of that's based upon the special evil qualities of Russia, the special evil qualities of China, the other side of the world. When, you know, if you look at things in historical perspective, this is the way great powers are, right? And I'm not saying we should, you know, we're so weak that we have to kind of throw countries in the periphery into some new Soviet Warsaw Pact system in which they salute. But at the same time, it's reasonable for us to have a sense of what their concerns are and maybe not, you know, poke the bear or kick the dragon. We should, you know, be thinking carefully about what we do. And the countries on their in their immediate periphery who value their autonomy should be looking for ways to preserve sovereignty in the basic sense of being able to run their own affairs in their own way without at the same time doing things that make their big neighbors kind of itchy, right? It's horse sense to be careful. Do you think it's possible uh, with a more flexible U.S. posture that we could thread that needle diplomatically? It's really hard to tell at this point whether there's there's, there's a possible deal, right? I, I you know I, I give American diplomacy uh, kind of mixed marks here, right? I think they they've I think their responses to the Russians 
have on the whole been clever. They've been judicious uh, on the whole. They've tried to accommodate Russian interests or shown ways that Russian security interests can be accommodated, uh, not by agreeing to pull back commitments to extant NATO allies. And I should have a caveat, by the way. I, I oppose bringing these people into NATO, but that's water under the bridge, right? Um, so they can, you know, they've come up with some ideas to kind of revive old arms control strategies of one sort or another to try and tell the Russians that, you know, there's still plenty of time to prevent the new NATO member states from becoming big base areas of potent American offensive capability. I mean, right now, most of the new member states, they each have a little something. They may have a combined ar- you know, a NATO combined arms battalion or task force. There may be some Americans exercising there. There may be some forward operating bases that American squadrons could use. There is this one big thing that I think was unnecessary and it's going to be hard to negotiate, which was the BMD system we put in Poland, missile defense system we put in Poland. That's trickier. I don't think we can pull out of it, but we could probably generate some traditional arms control techniques to ameliorate Russian concerns. Uh, all of this has been proposed. You know, we'll reopen this arms control negotiation, reopen that one. You know, We'll restrain ourselves, but you get to restrain yourself too in some ways, and the Russians won't like that, but you know they can't, you know, one hand washes the other in this sort of thing. So those proposals are clever. And I think they could work. The place where we've made no clever proposal, and therefore we can't even judge whether it would work, is on the Russian neuralgia about Ukraine. And I'm not a clever diplomat, and I don't know all the avenues that we could take to try and approach this problem. Uh, but what I've observed same as anybody else as a reader of newspapers and listener of speeches and whatever, that we really, neither we nor our European allies have, have yet offered much on this score that gives me cause to believe that the Russians will be moved, right? Now, that doesn't mean they'll invade. They may say to themselves, that they may come back to us with a tough message and say, You've given us nothing on Ukraine, but we have shown you something on Ukraine. What we've shown you is that we can move very fast militarily. We're much stronger than the Ukrainians. We've put a marker down, and you should read the marker carefully. You you can continue to say whatever you want about Ukraine's future in NATO, but if we see anything that looks like a consequential change, we will move militarily. We'll move fast and we'll move hard. There's not a damn thing you're going to be able to do about it because you're not close enough and you're not fast enough, right? So this is what was a compelling threat now becomes a deterrent threat. I think it's a pretty credible deterrent threat now, right? Now, you know, will, is there any way we can say to the Russians, we hear you without at the same time saying we capitulated, maybe the Europe, some of the European states, the Germans and the French, the others who have veto power within the alliance can convey to the Russians, look, we all hear you and 
you know, we can't climb down from this thing publicly, but we are going to say, you know, now, so long as you don't publish it, <laughs> that we get it, right? Now, some people think that by going through the, I always forget what they call them, Minsk agreements, I guess, um, this uh, Franco-German-Russian-Ukrainian negotiation on the uh, Donbass fighting, which hasn't really led anywhere. It's a framework that maybe there's a way to hide within that framework the thing that the Russians wanted, which we haven't, you know, which hasn't been delivered and which the Ukrainians oppose, which is a, a kind of a change in the Ukrainian constitution that brings the Donbass back into Ukraine but gives the Donbass semi-autonomy as well as a kind of a veto over Ukraine's overseas policy. I can well understand why the Ukrainians don't like that. Um, I kind of doubt that, that this is going to be the avenue, but it's one avenue that's been proposed. Another avenue that's been proposed, not by anyone in authority, but by many scholars and academics who look at this whole problem and are concerned, is that the Ukrainians, the Russians, and the Americans agree to a neutrality agreement for Ukraine, right? Now, that would mean Ukrainian forswearing any intent to join the alliance, us forswearing any intent for them to join the alliance, but people forget that an agreement like this also demands that the Russians forswear some things too, right? Which is that they would also forswear any intent to intrude on Ukraine's sovereignty or to try and coerce Ukraine into joining a Russian military combination, right? We would, you know, and some people would say, well, you know, it's like the 30s, it's not worth the paper it's printed on, right? Well, you're not worse off because the fact is that, uh, the Russians can attack the place anyway. The Ukrainians are not able to defend themselves. They're never going to be st strong enough. And we're not really planning to bring them into NATO because the truth is that many of the European partners don't want them. And all it takes is one to prevent it, right? There's more than one that don't want it. Uh, and particularly don't want it while Ukraine is still locked in a conflict. Yeah, I don't think NATO was ever taking on a member who was at war with a, another state that has a big conflict going on, which is what Ukraine does now. So, uh, you know, neutralization with assurances is not worse than the present situation from the point of view of Ukrainian security. It's, I think it's better, and many analysts think it's better, but Ukrainians, some Ukrainians don't think it's better. Many Americans don't think it's better, right? Um, and it's possible, you know, you could try and test the waters with the Russians this way and find out that this is not, in fact, what they want, that they really do want to absorb Ukraine back into the, you know, into Russia, right? That may be what they want. And then we have to scratch our heads and say, well, you know, the Ukrainians aren't going to agree to that and neither are we, but we're not going to wage war to prevent it, Right. But if this is really what Russia's intent is, to do this by coercion and military means, then they've revealed something about their type, which is to say rather aggressive. And um, we take the steps that we take as an alliance and as sovereign nations, which is we 
sharpen our sword and we do things to weaken Russia. That's the price they have to pay for um, for that big a change in the game, right? So you can see that, you know, even, even I am, you know, not willing to concede, you know, even though I am a realist, you know, I'm not an appeaser, I'm, an, I'm a realist, right? Realists want to think that great powers need to be accommodated in some way, but accommodation is not the same as saying, uh, you know, we're giving the store away to the other, other party and making things worse for us down the road in a kind of naive hope that things are going to get better. And, you know, a, a neutral Ukraine is not a pacified Ukraine. A neutral Finland was not a pacifist Finland, right? When Finland was a neutral, an armed neutral state, it was very heavily armed. And in some ways, it's still more heavily armed than some of our NATO members, right? Certainly more organi better organized for war than Ukraine is, despite its smaller size. The Swedes during the Cold War were the same. They were armed neutrals that defended, were prepared to defend their neutrality, right? Well, that's what Ukraine should be, an armed neutral prepared to defend their neutrality, even against us, right? Which, in principle, the Finns and the Swedes said they were going to do. In practice, they probably wouldn't have, right? But in principle, they... They felt like they had to go through the motions of convincing the Russians that they were not going to lend themselves to his basis to an aggressor against Soviet interests. Right? So there is a path here, um, but I don't, you know, every time the fin, you know, the Finland is mentioned as a comparison or armed neutrality is mentioned as an outcome, everybody in the West now publicly um Poo-poo's it. Oh, no, that's terrible. Oh, the Finns had a terrible time. Oh, no, that should never. No, 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 no. We can't do that. No, no, no. And, and by the way, with, you know, you should understand. I think people should understand that within the, especially within the United States, foreign policy establishment, as well as within some European member states, mostly the eastern states, the Baltics, Poland, especially, maybe some others, there's a profound desire to bring Ukraine into NATO. And, you know, for the Europe, those Europeans that support it, it's a simple rule, which is why should I be the eastern border of NATO when someone else could be the eastern border of NATO, right? So every new member is going to try to push the eastern border to, to, an, <laughs> to the next ones on the periphery that aren't, right? That's, that's what they want to do because they don't want to be the initial battle space if things go wrong. They want someone else to be it. So the Poles would like the Ukrainians or the Belarusians to be the initial battle space, right? As would the Baltic states, right? Now, within the American establishment, the reasons why there is a small coterie of people who want to bring Ukraine into NATO, you'd have to ask them. I, I do not understand this but I, as, a, as a policy choice. I, I understand their passion. They're extremely passionate. They're very determined. And um, they've achieved quite a lot, actually, which is one of the reasons why the Russians are so mad, right? Most Americans just don't know that, you know, every day there are Americans in the government who get up and their job is to work on moving the ball downfield in the direction of NATO membership. You know, what exercise can we have today? What training uh, relationship can we have today? What, what, how can we reform the Ukrainian military? 
Uh, I saw a story in the paper today that the American embassy in Ukraine is one of the largest American embassies in Europe. Well, it can't be because Ukraine's one of the most important countries in Europe. It's not. It's strategically insignificant. It has a small economy, no special technology that we want access to, no special raw materials, right? Why has it got this big embassy? Well, it's because we're doing all these projects. And these projects, I think, are embedded in an ideological position, not a strategic position. But these people hold it passionately. They're working on it all the time. And since it became American policy in 2008 to bring Ukraine into NATO, they're, they're American bureaucracies that are working this every day. And it's, I think it's one of the things that give the Russians pause. And the second thing that gives the Russians pause is that when the Americans really want something in the alliance, they get it. So if someday some future American president says, well, the Ukrainians have done everything we asked, and uh, you Europeans who have vetoed this, uh, you better do what we say or we're going to be really mad. right? And you don't want us really mad because uh, we defend you for free, or at least cheaply. right? And, you know, remember how Trump, I mean, Trump muscled the Europeans into basically making a travesty out of the JCPOA arrangements with Iran. Just muscled them. Well, if Trump could do it, some other future president could do the same on Ukraine. I, yeah. Now, I take Russian strategic concerns seriously, but again, the same you know, tribe in American foreign policy, very you know, you know, liberal in the sense of liberal internationalists, uh, they don't believe that when Putin and the Russians say that this is a security problem for them, that it really is. They view it as a regime security problem for them, which it may be, but they view a regime security problem as being just tough luck. In fact, we we don't want your regime to be secure. We, we want to overthrow your regime someday, too. We're going to turn you into a liberal democracy, right? So that that's their story about why Putin is so angry, and that's their story about why their policies are so legitimate. It may be true that this is why Putin is so angry, but it doesn't make their policies any more legitimate. Right? If we turn Russia into kind of an angry enemy because you're threatening the regime, it, it still produces the same set of negative consequences. right? Um, but I, they, I think they feel that since this is in pursuit of a kind of a universal truth, that it's somehow fine and... I think we're playing with fire. And this is a thing that eludes me is people don't believe or don't know that we're playing with fire. Right. I don't think people are going to, you know, when the, if, if, if we have a war over this and the smoke clears with Russia sitting on half of Ukraine, a few thousand Ukrainians killed, a lot of Ukrainian military equipment destroyed. And now in a big, you know, neo-mercantilist economic war with Russia and driving Russia closer to China, I think people are going to scratch their heads afterwards and ask themselves, was this policy really so smart? And I think there are Ukrainians even who will ask themselves whether this policy was really so smart. As you intimated there, um, I, I imagine a lot of Americans are puzzled as to why Ukrainian security has anything at all really to do with US national security. And you've written that European defense autonomy is an achievable and affordable goal. 
uh, despite the fact that the United States has often discouraged such efforts in the past. What do they need to get there? What do the Europeans need to do? That's right. It depends on where you're sitting and how ferocious you think the Russians are, right? The Europeans already collectively outspend the Russians on their military. If you're just using, you know, published defense spending figures at exchange rates. Now, you can play with the numbers and make some efficiency assumptions and kind of say, okay, the Europeans and the Russians more or less throw the same amount of resources at defense and sort of get the same amount out of it. But then there's still a problem that the Europeans are a coalition and the Russians are a single state, right? So depending on where on the periphery of Europe there might be a fight, not every European country is going to send all of its young people there to fight. So there are some problems with the additivity, right? And okay, fine, I'll concede all those. But France and Germany are the two leading states of the European Union now. Between the two of them, their populations equal Russia's. Between the two of them, their GDPs are vastly larger than Russia's. Um, between the two of them, I, I can't remember if their defense budgets quite equal the Russians, but I think it's close. It may even be a little bigger, but I, I'm drawing a blank on that at the moment. Uh, they both build very good military equipment. I mean, if you went out to buy a fighter plane, you'd buy a French fighter plane before you'd buy a Russian one if you could. Right. You'd buy a German tank before you'd buy a Russian tank if you could. Uh, I think you'd buy a German or a Russian, a German or a French um, reconnaissance satellite or communication satellite if you could. Right. Uh, you'd certainly buy a, you know, an Airbus airliner over anything built in Russia if you could. Right. Uh, the French are a nuclear weapons state. They're a small one relative to Russia because that's the choice they made. They could be a bigger one. They're the leadership group of this coalition. And if they want to fix it so that the European Union can defend itself, has the full suite of capabilities, then they can fix it. Most of the stuff you need is somewhere in Europe. There may not be quite enough of it. It may be in the wrong places, but most of it is somewhere in Europe and can be had. Most things that you need, if you don't have them, you can build them or you can build more of them. Right. So it's a policy choice. It's an alliance choice. Right. Uh, it's a national resource allocation choice. These are choices that the French and the Germans would have to make. And other Europeans would have to decide whether to follow them. And right now they won't. Right. Because most European states would rather be a rather follow the United States, which is far away and has never been a big problem for them, has always been a solution. And the Germans and the French at various times in their history have been other people's problems in Europe. So some of the weaker, smaller European states would rather not rely on France and Germany. I, I can well understand why they would rather not. But that's not my problem. That shouldn't be the problem of the American taxpayer, right? The real question you have to ask is, what are these states going to do if they have to rely on France and Germany? Because the Americans are busy somewhere else, either at home solving our own problems, which are manifest, or in Asia, where people seem to think the big competition is right now, big strategic competition. And it's, there's a case there. I mean, China is a 
a rising power with a lot of capacity and sharp elbows. So if the Americans decide to do less in Europe, I think the Europeans will decide to do more. And they are, there are states that can lead that. And I think in their interest, they will, even though now everyone thinks that they won't because in part, they have an interest. And the same as the Germans. The Germans love trying to convince us and everyone else that they can't lead, they won't lead, no one will trust them, it'll be awful, they're pacifists, right? I mean, they, you know, they're good at this, right? And it's been great for them, right? Because they're not spending a big share of their GDP on defense. And the Americans are now defending the Poles, who are now the eastern border of NATO. So the, the Germans are sitting pretty, right? If the Americans do less than the Alliance, the Germans have to do more. And it's going to be hard, right? It's going to be hard. I want to ask you about, um, as a final question, this uh, love triangle between the United States, Russia, and China, as, as you mentioned there. As U.S.-Russian tensions over this crisis, as well as others, uh, increase, some analysts suggest this takes resources and focus away from China, which maybe presents more of a dynamic challenge than Russia. Um, so, I mean, does maintaining a relatively hard line against both Russia and China push the latter two together in some way? Of course it does. This is balance of power 101, right? You know, the Americans are still the greatest power in the world, and we're pushing, right? And you know, we think that they're pushing, but they think that, that we're pushing. And uh, I think both sides are right. I mean, the Russians are pushing, the Chinese are pushing, we're pushing. This is what great powers do. And sometimes they find a modus vivendi and they're pushing. And sometimes they don't and really bad things happen, right? Uh, because of the way the Cold War ended with us with very forward positions in Asia and Europe, we're pushing from those forward positions. Russia and China have a central position, right? In point of fact, they're natural adversaries and would be at each other's throats if it wasn't for the fact that we're pushing each of them at opposite ends of the Eurasian landmass, and we have a lot of capacity and we have a big coalition, right? Now, how strong we are is in, you know, a matter of debate, right? But we're pretty darn strong, right? Uh, I am not confident we're strong enough to fight both of these countries at the same time, plus maintain our hegemony in the Middle East, plus run a global war on terror, plus try and convince the North Koreans not to go nuclear, plus, plus, plus. We have a long list of things we're trying to do, all of which somebody wants to make military threats to do. I am not convinced we have all that much capability. We have a lot, but I don't think we have that much military, economic, political, and otherwise. But the American foreign policy establishment does believe we have that much capability. And they're acting forward everywhere in ways that drives countries together, drives our adversaries together, right? And our adversaries look at our capacity and our attention span and everything else, and they go, huh, you know, if for whatever reason, the Americans manage to get busy fighting the Russians, Ooh, the Chinese are bound to see a world of opportunity. If for some reason the Americans are busy having a spat with the Chinese, the Russians are bound to see a world of opportunity, right? That's the way multipolar international politics works, right? And though he utterly bungled it and could not 
didn't was unable to conceive of it in a way that you know was persuasive to anyone. Donald Trump's you know you know real estate developer you know mad capitalist <laughs> instincts made him suspect that there was a problem in what we were doing. We were driving our business competitors together into a larger combination. And he had the intuition that maybe we should try and pull one of them away, or at least sow some dissension, right? Now, he made a hash of it, and he also convinced many Americans to be very suspicious of his own personal motives. Uh, so I'm not carrying any brief for the man, but there was an intuition there that um, was not unreasonable, which is, you try to do some things to split your enemies. Don't drive them together, drive them apart, which was out of on Bismarck's intuition about great power politics. Try and find ways to keep other great powers apart. Wedge them, right? So we're doing the opposite, and uh, um, we do the opposite because of a combination of our values and our power and the geographic circumstances of the end of the Cold War, which left us so forward with so many of the more capable states in our penumbra, right? So that's our thing, and it's the consensus view in the establishment that we can sustain the whole thing um, and still do all the things people say they want to do at home. I don't see it, but... You're measuring military power is not like you know measuring ingredients for a recipe in a cookbook, and uh, you know a lot is only learnable by competing, and the establishment seems to want to learn by competing, and if you're very careful and very clever and very judicious, maybe you can learn before things go very bad, or maybe it turns out you're right and the other guy is going to give in in the end. Or maybe you are wrong and you learn about your relative power by having to fight somebody. And that's not so pretty in the nuclear age. Right? So this is the final kind of fly in the ointment for all this way of thinking is that we do live in the nuclear age. And there's some things you just don't want to find out. Barry Posen, thank you so much for talking with us today. It's good to be with you.